You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And, and, and we're going to try to make it work is the period of the Gaonim. And what exactly is that period about? Um, we are familiar with the uh, the Tanoim, of course, they are the architects of the Mishnah. There might be a question as to what, how their work proceed, proceeded and what was the form that it took originally and then eventually. But we, are, we, know, we know who Tanoim are and we know the material, whether it's Mishnayas, Tosefta, the Brises that show up in the Gemara that we don't have necessarily independent records for, the Teres Kohanim, the Mechilta, the Sifrei, the Safroas, which is also Teres Kohanim. Um, and then we have the Amaroyim, who we know with the word Amora is to, to explain, develop. And we've seen, of course, the Amaroyim in various uh, contexts throughout Shas, in Medrashim, um, and we know that they uh, bow to the superior, uh, if not intellect, but at least the superior connection to the Mesorah of the Tanoim. And the Rambam and others have tried to explain why it is that way, why there seems to be uh, a sort of intellectual cutoff um, and, and, and what made the base Medrash of Rebbe and his, uh, his Mishnah so Definitive, and what was it that the Chazal, as we call them, were trying to do in the Gemara? And this has really been the has, has been studied and chewed over, and and is really relevant consistently when anyone ever studies the Talmud. But the period post the Talmud, before the Rishonim appear, before Rashi, before the Rambam, before the Ramban, Rashbon, the Ritva, um, that period is is is, is very cloudy. We know that there are things in the Gemara that the Rishonim have told us really weren't in the original text of the Shas. They weren't in what we call Ravina and Ravashi's uh, somewhat final edit. There were in- interpolations that were inserted. And those, we, we've heard these names before, and you probably heard them. Uh, they, they call them the Rabbonin Savaroi. Um, and, and that's like, what did they do? Did they have a right? Um, and then we have the Gaonim. And I, I would say that there's probably no other period that has this Janus like aspect. On one hand, from the Gaonim. On the other hand, well, you know, the Gonim sort of, you know, sputter and don't really, do they really affect us? Right? Were the Gonim, right? We know that, the, you know, I- I- historians are able to determine when the periods begin and when the periods end. But the people who lived those periods didn't necessarily subscribe to the beginning and ending. I- I'm going to start with something a little bit strange. We know that Rav Shmuel ben Eli of Baghdad, saw himself as not just a Gaon, but as an Amora. In other words, he, although he lived in the time of the Rambam, you know, in the, uh, in, in the 13th century, he believed that what was going on in Baghdad was 
a, a, a direct continuance of the, the greatness of the Amaroyic period. Um, the Amaroyim. I mean, we're in the same place, right? Now, the Rambam, as I've said before, in his Hakdama to the Mishnah Torah, sort of uh, you know creates a, a fiction that has no basis in history, really, which is that there, that after the time of Ravashi, there were wars and battles, and the yeshivas sort of crumbled, and 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 and, and they sort of like fell apart, and the the great authority that was that was uh, invested in Ravashi uh, really couldn't have been held by the people who came after him because so much of the 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 heart and soul and body of those great men were not there anymore. This does not seem to uh, um, survive the test of historical accuracy. It seems like there was. There might have been difficulties. There were difficulties throughout uh, the period of, of, the, of the formation of the Mishnah and the Gemara. However, you know, the Rambam is able to say those are not, we are not bound. And the Rambam says clearly that we are not bound by anything that the Gaonim promulgate. And, and and we're gonna you know, so the Rambam really you know and, and, and the Rambam uses although he doesn't you know necessarily quote him in this way but the Rambam uses the greatest source to justify his dissing using that term of the gonim the reef because he discovers that the reef um. Uh, although he does quote Gaonic material, many times rejects it, many times goes without it, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't really refer to it. And you know, the Rambam was willing to say that his father's Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Migash, was the Rimigash was greater than the Gaonim, and that despite the fact that the Gaonim lived earlier, and in some ways the Rambam couldn't deny that they were. Operating uh, from the seat of of the uh, of, of where the yeshivas were, that doesn't make a difference. Intellectual strength and understanding uh, could be developed independently. And you know, l- l- let me put it even even starker. Uh, you know, the Rambam felt, and this seems to be also um, the idea of the fiction that was uh, developed, I'm going to get back to the sharing in a second, that was developed by the great uh, his, pseudo-historian, the the Raiva, the, the Raiva Rishon, the author of the Sefer HaKabbalah, not the Raiva who disagreed with the Rambam or the Raiva's father-in-law, the Rav Bezdin. This was the author of a book of, 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 of how the world, rabbinic world came to be. And what he says was, of course, you've heard these stories before. Dr. Kogan, I'm sure, has heard them. About the four captives that were, um, each one went to a different uh, center uh, on the Mediterranean area. And each one was able to develop uh, on their own some, you know, a, a great center. Now, this, this fairy tale is really trying to explain how Europe, North Africa, becomes independent of the peer of, of, of the Gaonic control. And of course it did happen. Jews spread out 
and they no longer felt they needed to have the answers coming from that place, that place that was Iraq, that place that was Baghdad, which was where the yeshivas had ended up. In other words, give us your Gemara and we'll run with it. It's almost like, now again, it's, it's different than the argument today in the Supreme Court about original intent or not, but, it's, but it has similarities, which is we'll take the document, we'll take the Talmud, the Gemara document, and we will analyze it and deal with it and explain it, and that will be our guide. And like the Rambam says, that was the last blast. Everything else that came, and it's hundreds of years that we're talking about, from the end of the Gemara till the beginning of the Rishonim, the Rambam and others, and the Rambam felt the Rif was with him on this, we can decide on our own. We don't ignore it, but we don't have to treat it as definitive or as something greater than us. As I said before, Atana and an Amora, as brilliant as Rabbi Yochanan was, as great as Rav and Shmuel were, as great as Abai and Rava were, they felt that they needed to uh, be uh, to submit to the uh, the greatness of the generations before them, the sources that those generations before them articulated, whether it was a Brisa or a Mishnah, and you can't argue with Atana. That's not true about the Gaonim. That idea of closer to Sinai you are, was not true anymore. Now, what's interesting is, is that it, it starts up again with the period of the Rishonim, which means that the Achronim have to treat the Rishonim in a similar fashion, at least it's expected, unless, you know, you do have certain exceptional cases, where, like the, the, the Amaroyim, have to treat the Tanoim. So we have Tanoim, Amaroyim, and then we have Rabbanon Savroi Gaonem. Okay, now it starts up again. Rishonim, Achronim. Maybe this period is called Gedoi Rishishivas Malakim. So that period in the middle, Rabbanon Savroi and Gaonim, has, is, is, what is it? Yes, they, why isn't it definitive? What was going on then? What was it that put the Rish, what is it that, that, that caused the Rishonim to sort of once again begin? So that's what the Sefer Kabbalah tries to sort of say. Well, we have reached independence from, from Bovel. And that's why in each place, they sort of said, but these people somehow got their, their training in the Babylonian uh, yeshivos, but then they were able to adapt at each one in different places in centers in Europe. That's one myth. There's another myth of how Rav Koinimus came from Italy, coming from Bovell first, and then from Italy, he advanced into the Rhine Valley and up into Germany, and that's how the Ashkenazim started you know, their traditions. The, the long and short of it is, is that we end up with a period that, as I said, hmm, you know, like what's going on? Now, one thing that's going on is that they didn't produce literature in the same way. Um, the works that they produced were were not like the Rambam's work, as we've seen, and wasn't like many of the other the works of the Rishonim that were books with a theme and an idea, even in some cases with a table of contents and or with the Rambam's sense of a, of a very uh, interesting, brilliant way of organizing things. That's not what these farmer. We do have now the later Gaonim. We do Rav Sadia. And Rav Haigon are extremely organized, but and 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 um, the uh, they do have books that seem to be organized in that way, 
But the earlier period of the Godim, it doesn't seem to have that sort of organization, and it doesn't seem to have the same sort of independent voice that we hear. Like, you can tell that's the Rambam talking. So the Gaonim, in, in a way, uh, we know they were there, and we know that not everyone shared the attitude of the Rambam and the Rif. Primarily, the Rashi, the Rabbeinu Tam, the Rishonim from France and Germany do quote Gaonic material, and they give it a lot more respect than the Rambam and the Rif do. And that indicates that there seems to be some issue about how we are supposed to look at what they have given to us. Now, um, that's why I call this really this that long-winded introduction, but I think it's very necessary, is to what we are trying to, going to, trying to do. We're trying to delve into this period and, in a way, bring out some gems and give us, at least on a base level, familiarity where we didn't have it before. Now, there have been uh, giants who have pioneered this field. And much of what we will learn about is based on their analysis and sometimes their dogged research to just find this material. Some of the names involved are Rav Simcha Asaf, who collected much Gonic material and also wrote about it in a... In a um, in a style that is very clear and, and, and precise about who they were. We also have uh, uh, Shimon Pozansky, who also wrote, uh, d- discovered things from the Gaonim. Louis Ginsberg, Levy Ginsberg from the JTS, also has contributed uh, in, in material. Now, the reason why Louis Ginsberg and others were able to contribute, and Pozansky, was because, and even Simchasaf was because Gaonic material became more um, prevalent with the end of the 18th, the end of the 19th, and beginning of the 20th century, with what was discovered in the Cairo Geniza and other places. And all of a sudden, we ended, we started discovering lost works. And these lost works um, <clears throat> shone a light that were perhaps we didn't see before. It made sense that they would be discovered in the Cairo Geniza because Cairo was one of the important stops of where Gaonic material would make its way into the rest of the Jewish world. It would start from the Mideast, from Iraq. It would travel by foot and then by boat across the Mediterranean, by the Mediterranean ports, stopping, and in each place where, they, where the ship stopped, the, these works were copied and then sent further. Because remember, before the Rishonim period began, the yeshivos also were embryonic and they were dependent in some ways on what the Gaonim were doing. So the Gaonim, it made sense that Cairo would be a place in Egypt where this material would, would stop, make a, a pit stop before it was moved on. And then people, because Jews love material, they would be copied. And then they would be circulated. And then they were thrown into this Geniza. Right? And then when they discovered this Geniza, of course, what they discovered was wedding invitations, poems, who knows, but also 
chuvos and sometimes complete books and works that had not been known up until that time. And that gave people like Ginsburg and others um, a lot of material to work with and to actually push for a reevaluation of what the Gaonim uh, had been writing about and what their opinions were. Now, those are exceptional ones, uh, and there's still material probably still being found and being mined. But I want to really uh, focus tonight on a safer that was quite prevalent, although, as we'll see, not in its complete form, and that is the, the Shiltos of Rav Achoy. Now, I, I want to dedicate that so far as history, and I, I, I don't, I, it's not necessarily worth dedicating that to Rav Tzvi Greenblatt, Zecher Tzadik Levrocho, who was Nifter on Erev Shabbos. Um, but I would like to, from this point on, uh, to what we're going to be learning, to uh, dedicate it to Ilu Nishmosoy, um, it is perhaps in a way fitting, um, because, uh, and you'll see why, that discovering these uh, gems and bringing them to light uh, is really in the spirit of uh, what Rav Nota encouraged all his students to do, despite the fact that it was untread territory, uh, um, to actually have that uh, enjoy, that ec- ecstatic sense of discovery on something and, and being able to put into perspective. Now, uh, the Shiltos, which is questions, so to speak, uh, uh, essays on the Parsha. It's one of the first works that we have on the Parsha. Now, why is it that way? Because the Parsha didn't become the Parsha until the Gemara sort of ended, right? There, was, there, was, there wasn't necessarily a uniform way of going through the whole Torah. It was, there was a debate between the Bnei Bavel and the Bnei Eretz Yisroh, what was the best method of going through what we call the five books of Moses, the Chamisha Chum Torah. We know about this. The Gemara tells us that there was one system uh, that took hold in Eretz Yisroh that was a three-year system. And there was another system that was a yearly one. And that was the one that was pushed primarily by the Chachmei Bavel. Um, so in other words, even after the Gemara, um, you know, even as the Gemara was being formed, and then after the Gemara sort of stopped and there was the Gaonim, the Bnei Eretz Yisrael were still finishing the Torah. In fact, even places in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, they were finishing the Torah every three years. And the Bnei Bavel were pushing it, uh, no, every year. And this is, of course, where Simchas Torah comes from. The reason why Simchas Torah is not mentioned earlier because there wasn't a universal idea that we finish the Torah once a year. But the Bnei Bavel, who finished the Torah once a year and came up with what were the parshios, how they should be read, and which and where you stop and start. Some of it, as Bob knows, is quite perplexing why the parsha starts here and why this is the beginning of the parsha. It sometimes, you know, you could do a whole work and maybe Bob's books sometimes deal with that, which is why is this starting of a new parsha. Why does the parsha start here? It seems like the parsha could have started before, right? And then we have that, that, that issue, and yet the B'nai Bavel, you know, sort of came with their hegemony and developed these parshios. And Rav Go, and we'll talk about who he was, wrote halachos for the common man that's come, that stemmed from the parsha. 
And just like every show rabbi sometimes needs to, what's his hook? What? How is he going to be speaking about uh, vegetarianism when, you know, the, the, the Torah is talking about, uh, you know, uh, tzaras? Like, how is he talking about vegetarianism? Where did he get that from? Like, wh- what Rashi did he find that somehow had to do with the greatness of vegetables that he decided, you know, because it's that this is, this is the, to talk about this subject. So similarly, the Shilto sometimes goes through some contortions to put on the table in his book, halachic agodic discourses on the parsha, And that's what the Shiltas the Rav is. Now, the reason why it's not just considered like, oh, some rabbi wrote a book of his sermons is because it contains evidence from an early source of textual differences than the, that are different than what we have. And also sources that clearly seem to be quoting early sources that we don't have. So there's interesting material that we don't have. There's alternate versions of what we do have. And there's also, very importantly, psakim. Psakim that the, the, the shiltos uh, puts on the table that later authorities quote. Again, remember the Rambam might not necessarily care about that, but people like the Balayatos was do. And Rashi. So I'm gonna. I want to start with a, a quote from uh, Ashiltos uh, that is quoted was quoted recently. Uh, if those that are doing the Dafyomi, okay. So I want to quote a Rashi in Yevamis Daf Memhei, and this is a question that was actually posed to the Grand Sanhedrin of Napoleon, which is, can a Jew marry an Anjou? And what is the perspective of a Jew marrying a non-Jew? And is it considered a legal marriage? And those, of course, were things that were going on all the time. So Rashi says in Kedush, Rashi says in Yavam Mustaf Menei, and I'll read you the Rashi that's on the board. Okay. In other words, basically, a, a non-Jew has no Kedushan. Why? And a slave has no Kedushan. Because they aren't from us. And we know that, um, you know, Avram Avinu said to Eliezer, who he loved, he said, you stay im hachamor. You stay. Now, why do we have to know that those words that, that, that Eliezer was told to stay with the donkey. Why do we even have to know that, that, that statement? So Chazal take from that statement the idea, we take the words, I, the letters I and Mem and view it as Am HaChamor. Am HaDomelechamor. That really, the Eliezer, despite his, his, his um, high moral standards and, 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 and loyalty, comes from a people that we see as similar to mammals, to just donkeys. Now, that would be an Evid, because an Evid is nowhere. An Evid is a working thing. He's meant to just work. What about the regular non-Jew? So Rashi says, Lesa b'chlal kedushin d'chsev, b'zayin umos lo s'schatin Lo yicha b'chon chitun. Okay. 
So how do you know people that come from the seven nations that we were supposed to conquer? How do you know that marriage can't occur between a Jewess or a Jew and one of them? Because the Torah says, which doesn't just mean don't marry them, but that it won't work. It doesn't say that don't live with them. What it's saying is, is that it won't work. Whatever sort of marriage you're trying to make, civil, beautiful, holistic, Klingon, whatever it is, it's not going to work. Chitun does not work with them. The concept of marriage, once we have been makabal the Torah, the concept of a partner for life in that way, if you come from us, cannot happen with anyone from the seven nations. Okay. What about if you're not from the seven nations, Rashi says. It says by the Yifas Toar that you have to go to this, through this strange, um, unique type of manis, you know, aspects, manifest, you know, it's me- mechanisms. When you find this woman that you've discovered is beautiful, captive woman, and if you go through all of that, then you have a right to have her, which shows you that she, who isn't necessarily from the seven nations, she's from any of the out Gentile nations that we might be engaging in war with. So you see that the only time you could really have relations is through this process. That means beforehand, she was off limits. Less Havaya. You couldn't have some sort of seaside cantina romance with on the occupation. It's only if you go through this process. But in generally, anybody that comes from the other nations of the world, you cannot have relations with. Therefore, you can learn all, all non-Jews from there. Hilkoch, since there's no Kedushin, so basically it doesn't work. Then the Rashi quotes, So Rashi was familiar with a work called the Shiltos, right? Where is the Shiltos? Where is it? So it happens to be in Parshas Vayishlach, the... Uh, the uh, Rabbi Shaya Pick, who wrote a commentary on the Shiltos, tells us. In Parshas Vayishlach, some reason, the Shiltos deals with this question of marrying non-Jews. We're, and, and he quotes a Pasuk that's not even in that Parsha. What does it say in about Avram Avinu? It says, Vehi bu'ulas ba'al. Hmm. What does it say? It says that, right? Avram is told, uh, I'm sorry, Avimelech is told that stay away from this woman. She is not free. She has had relations with a man who is her husband, and her husband is the one that she is connected with. Okay. But What's what do we what do we see from there? But Darshina Misanadrin, You know what they have? 
In other words, they understand, Avimelech understands the idea that you have a woman, that you, she is your woman that you sleep with and that you live with. But that's what they have. That's all that they have. In other words, Avimelech had to be told it in terms he could understand. He was talking, again, we're talking about Avram and Sarah pre-Harsinai. And God is talking to a man, a civilized man of that period, and is told, hmm, you know, this woman, meaning she has this man who she sleeps with, and she is committed to him through the fact that they have sex together, which means that's what does it. That's what creates their relationship. They don't have an idea of being married without it. It's all about the fact that she agrees to be his sex person or the person that he will produce children with and they sleep together and that's it. They don't have anything, anything more than that. They don't have an idea of, well, now that you stood under the chuppah, now we are in some ways beginning our married life. They don't have that. Come into my house. We're now living together. We've, a year has passed since the engagement. They don't have that. He says, He says, He says, They don't have an idea of becoming married. We have an idea that you give Kesef Kedusha and you become married. That doesn't exist, as we see from Avimelech. They don't have that. There is no idea that you are a betrothed to anyone, right? And therefore, they don't have anything except living as man, living as a couple and copulating. That's what they have, but they don't have anything else besides that. So there's no way you can have kedushin with them, right? You can't have kedushin. Kedushin would mean that's something that's reserved for us. That is a that Rashi quotes the Shiltos for that. It didn't come Rabbi, from a Gemara. Rabbi, can and, I, yes, Bob. Isn't one of the uh, seven uh, seven laws of Noah uh, the Giloy Arroyo? Right. So the, it would be considered a a marriage, but but in no way, shape, or form similar to our marriage. In mm-hmm. other words, it, it's like it's like in other words, Rashi starts out with saying, they're animals, right? And you can't do Kedushan to them, right? Well, that's for an Evid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Los Iskata means it just don't work, man, right? The Shiltos gives us a third way of looking at it, that the, the what God has said works for them. And, and it's sort of like the B'nai Noach is, is, is sort of like what the Rambam says at the beginning of, 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 of Sefer Noshim. You know, you've get this woman, you say, like, you grab her, it's okay, okay, we're going to be living together, okay, that's it, right, but there isn't any formalities beforehand, um, and you, you don't have, really, a, a process, you don't have a, an act that somehow makes her off limits, have you slept with her yet? If you haven't slept with her yet, then, the, again, it's only the consistency, maybe even once, I guess once counts, but if you, but but that's really what it's about. It's there's, and, and Rashi says, even let's say you would, you say, I hereby with this act of Bia want to make you my wife. That doesn't work. Again, the Shiltos, all quoting from the Shiltos, because 
Havayos are hiskush lahadodi, meaning that we know there's three ways to acquire, so don't quote, a woman, Kesef Shtar and Bia. Well, they don't have that, that's called Arison. Well, if, if though none of that can work, there's no Arison by that. And it's interesting that, um, you know, that, you know, the Shiltos uses the Gemara in Sanhedrin to really explain why could, there is no sense of Kedushan at all but for Ananju. So that is. A, a, a source that Rashi felt he wanted somewhat of as a secondary source. He doesn't bring it a primary, but you see Rashi's familiarity with this work and what Rashi gains from it. I, again, I, I'm not going into in depth exactly why it's important. I think it does give a little bit of, of a different aspect, but you see that Rishonim, like Rashi and others, use this book and they felt it could help them. And that kept, that kept this book alive. Because the Rishonim, because they, you know, despite the, you know, the Rambam and others, but the Rishonim that we study Gemara with kept on quoting the Shiltos. And to a point that the book really uh, was, was published, they did have copies of it, and it, was, it, it isn't just a rare curiosity. Now, I w- would want to now show you a piece of the Shiltos inside. Now, The book does not start with a introduction. It starts with Beratius. So let's read a little bit of the Shiltos, shall we? The very first Shilto. Shilto de Mechayiven de Be... Now, again, one thing you'll notice is that the language that it was written in was the language they all wrote. They wrote Aramaic. They wrote like the Gaonim wrote, like the Chuvas of the Gaonim were, like all the Gaonic literature was in Aramaic. Remember, it wasn't like, oh, the Gemara, they spoke Aramaic. They felt that they were, they were the extension of the, uh, of the Bali of Chazal. And therefore, they spoke that way. They used Aramaic basically all the time, unless they were quoting Mishnaic Hebrew. And um, and, and they also, as you're going to see, had their own versions of, of what we know as Madrashim from other sources. So the very first, as we know, the, in Sefer Beratius, the Mitzvah Shabbos is there. We talk about Shabbos, Adam Arishon, uh, after his creation, we know we have the Psalm of Bayechul. So let's take a look. The Machiv and Beis Yisrael, Lemenach Biyom the Shabbata. The Jewish people have to be involved, have to have Menuch on Shabbos. Why? The Kadbari. Uh, Rabbi Kivalovich, just, just the word. I mean, you said it was like questions. Right, a question so, is going to come out. Okay. In other words, so he starts. Like this is the first question? No, so was... this is really the background to a question that he's going to leave. It's almost like, um, you know, I want, to, I want to ask you something, but first I'm going to give you some information. Now, Bob, I should tell you, there's been some people who have theorized that the work was written for Balabatim. Specifically, he had a son, they say, that sort of was felt that the Talmudic information, the way it was coming, was was was, was too ob- obscure, and he wasn't able to grab onto it. So they say that Rav Achoy, spurred by 
you know, issues with his own children, decided to, you know, create this work that would become a way you could learn, you know, Balabatim can learn on Shabbos, people like his son, and be able to take in, you know, very important information and material. But he knew that he needed to sort of like um, uh, meld Agarata and Halacha, as you're going to see. So the Mechaivin, the Beis Yisrael, the Jewish people need to rest on Shabbos. The We know God created the world. created them in six days. And he rested on the seventh, on the day we call Shabbos, or Shabbat as seven. Ubarke, and he gave it a brocha. and he made it holy. Now, you would say, okay, Shabbos was blessed and made holy. He gives a very prosaic example. Ke'inish, like a person, de'boni beisa, anybody who builds a house. Ve'kad matzvisle, when he finishes it, when it's all set up, when it's all standing. Ve'gomer le'la and he finishes it, he says, everybody, I've finished it. He says, okay, everybody, come and see my house. I've finished, man. And he makes like a party. People, even like people say, people were prone to say, my house, it's a, a simcha, man. I finished my house. Come and see what I did over here. You see over here? See, I got these, uh, you see, uh, uh, I got this hidden staircase. Oh, yeah, you see, right? You see, we got the root cellar over here. Yeah, look, everybody, come on, check it out. God, what do you mean by Yom Ashvi? By Yom Ashvi, he finished it in six days. So basically, means it's almost like a party. Is almost like the idea, as we're going to see, is based on, as we see, as the Mepharshim of the Shilta say, it's like Khalil Basi. It's like, it's great. Like Vayachal means what happened on the seventh day? Party time. Vayachal is like uh, is, is a proof, not that he finished on the seventh day. Vayachal is miloshon happy, like kilel, like 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 like, like a kilela is like it's like a, it's like a fancy uh, a party headdress that women would wear. So vayachal yabayomashri means God made a party on the seventh day. He sort of in, in, infused it with a certain happy ardor on the seventh day. So that's the way he starts. That that's really what Shabbos is about. Shabbos is really God's happiness of the seventh day. And therefore, and therefore God tells us, Nuhu, you don't work, the same way I don't, which means this is my Simcha day, the day of celebrating creation. And as the Pasik ends, and why? Because remember it, because I rested on day. So therefore, what is the day about? Not just taking a day off. But basically, you need to be happy to do things that add great uh, sense of joy to you. Just, just uh, like luxuriating in the and how good it makes you feel. 
in the way you eat and drink. And more than that, he says, and the same way if you're coming to a party, you can't just go, you know, and, you know, and cut off jeans. You should honor it with the types of dress and really the best type of, 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 of underclothing, like clothing that's close to your body and clothing that's on, that, that, that you put around you, on top of your body. What does it say? That shows you kibadito is, in other words, you call it oneg. That means, oh, I'm eating great today. But also kibadito. How, how, do you, how do you honor it? You honor it by the way you dress. That you dress differently. Because Rabbi Yochanan, and this, the, the Shiltas' Gersir is different than the Gemara. The Gemara says Rabbi Yochanan always called his clothes the things that honored him. The Shiltas' Gersir is Rabbi Yochanan called the clothes that he wore on Shabbos Mechabdusi. His regular clothes were one thing, but his special Shabbos clothes were called, this is what honors me, these Shabbos clothes. I feel it, I feel it. And then the Shiltas quotes um, a Yershalmi. I'm sorry, this is not from Yisham, this is from the Gemara. In other words, if you don't have enough money to buy special clothes for Shabbos, so what you could do is sort of like a trick. You could sort of like just lower your, in other words, normally when a person's working in those days, you don't have clothes down to your feet. There's a reason, you know, we talk about why is it that the Hasidim and, you know, great rabbis, they wear long frocks. Like, what is this with this long clothing on Shabbos? Like, is it, is it just some sort of throwback to some weird way they used to dress? No. The idea is, is that when you work during the week, you're not going to go out there and let your, um, your clothes dangle into the dirt and the dust and the mud because right, so so when a person walks and his clothes are long, hmm, you must not be working today. So in other words, your average clothes. Because remember, the average person was not like we have here—a person who is a professor or a person who uh, who sits behind a, a, a counter and takes in dry cleaning, or a person who sits in front of a computer screen. No, what working meant was getting down and dirty, and you know, and and and, and being involved in the ground. So if you if your clothes are long, and if you say, hmm. That doesn't look like your weekday clothes, and you obviously aren't working today. And that's where you have the custom of, of long clothing. And that's why if you don't have the money to actually have a, 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 a spanking nice version of what you wear during the week and maybe a little bit of an upgrade, you could just take your old clothes and do a little bit of inventive uh, stitching on it that will make it seem as if they are special clothes. Is that where a Bekisha comes from? Right, that's exactly that's what it comes from, yes. So Tanya, Amrab Yochanan, Adam Atifos. This is the Yershalmi. A person really needs to have two things that he wears over his shirts and stuff. One is a weekday and one is a Shabbos one. And then he goes into other drushes here about how you should walk different on Shabbos. Um, uh, he, he talks about um, not 
not using Shabbos as a day off to hire workers. And you shouldn't, of course, uh, use Shabbos as a way to even sort of like, you know, um, to sort of like hint to someone, hey, you know, after Shabbos, we're going to be going out and doing some work. Um, however, he does say that adding, but that doesn't mean that Shabbos, you can't talk about anything mundane because if they have to do with mitzvos, of course, you can talk about them and you can take your calculator, well, not an electric one, but you can make exact calculations if they are about mitzvahs on Shabbos. And you can decide how much money goes to different aniyim. If Shabbos is the time people are around, the Shiltos quoting the Gemara, but puts it into perspective that you're allowed to come up with post kinsadokal aniyim Shabbos. You can actually decide how much each Oni is supposed to get. He's going to get five dollars. He'll get ten dollars. This one doesn't have stuff, and you can actually talk about exact amounts that are going to be dispensed after Shabbos. But you can come up with the idea of who gets what exact amount of money on Shabbos itself. And quoting the Gemara, "V'amr of Yaakov bar Idi, Amr Right up until now, he didn't really quote. He quoted Rav Chista, and he quoted Rav Huna, and here he's quoting um, Rav Yaakov bar that mefachem bikuach nefesh b'shabbos. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you save lives, as you're going to see in a minute. What it means is that you can have discussions about life-saving things, like, okay, we need to put up a, a stoplight at that intersection. We need to put barriers there. We need to do something to stop the hooligans that are coming in from the south. You can do what it takes. In order to do that, you can go to the halls of justice. And you're not coming to give a shear. You're coming there to say, we've got a problem in the community. There's too many cars coming in from the other city. What are we going to do? Or et cetera, et cetera. Who are we going to vote for? Whatever it is that needs to happen, you can do that if, it's, if the Rabbin benefited on Shabbos and it's a way to, to, to help them. And as he quotes Shmuel Bar Nachmeni, again, Rabbi Yochanan, you can even go if the guy that you need to go to happens to be using this Shabbos off to, to, to watch the ice capades or to watch a monster truck rally or to see Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant or the, the, you know, to see uh, you know, the, the Walenda brothers at Barnum and Bailey, you could go there. You can send the rabbis with the long beards there. Okay. You can even go so far as if you could figure out, oh, right? Laser Wolf, I've got a match for you. Oh, yeah. And... This is how much. Yeah, okay. Uh, where are they going to live? Okay, let's 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 talk about it. Or you can you can contract with someone to be your son's teacher, and that means talking about how much you're going to pay. You can do that on Shabbos, of course, and you can even talk to somebody about taking your son in as an apprentice and how much he's going to earn as an apprentice, and what exactly that job would be. All of this mundane talk the Shiltos is saying is fine. You can do all of that on Shabbos. And some of it is a mitzvah to do on Shabbos. Um, Now, this part is a little bit why this is here. I don't have a good interpretation. But then he talks about this idea of a Tanya of Shimon ben Elezer Omer, Tinok ben Yom Chai Mechavon Shabbos. 
When it comes to Chilul Shabbos, actually, even a one-day-old child, you can Mechal Shabbos on. Shenemar? The Shomru of Israel was that Shabbos. He's only, but what? Wait. He's only a day old. He's not really keeping Shabbos, is he? No, but the Torah says, V'shomru v'bnei Yisrael sa Shabbos, v'aso sa Shabbos. So Amr Torah, it's worth it, Chalel Shabbos Achas, or many Shabbosim, to look at the big picture. G'day she'yishmar Shabbos is harbin. And that's why, no matter how, even though the child is very young, we'll do anything to keep him alive, because we want to have more people keeping Shabbos. But even the greatest king that we've had, once he dies, you can't do anything. And as we've saw in a previous year, we don't get involved with mitzvahs of even of kovet ames, if it's even though it's a very important mitzvah, but we won't do it on Shabbos. Now, now, up, now, then he says, that's Inu Rishus. You can't make yourself feel bad on Shabbos. That's if you know, basic, because you know, this is something that is um, Rishus. It's something that it's voluntary. Let's say something upsets you. And you need to fast because that dream is a message from beyond. Mishum and you want that dream to dissipate, that you're allowed to do even though you're going to be hungry on Shabbos. Why? And he quotes Rabbi Barmachasya, right? Omar Rav Chama Barguria. It's only a it's only a fast that can somehow obviate the the sort of semi-prophecy that a bad dream seems to portend. It's like Eishlin Oiris. And otherwise, it's like chips that go into a fire. That once you have the, the the fast, the fast will like will consume it and eliminate the effects of that bad dream. But it has it happens even on uh, on Bobayom and Rav Chista says even if it's Shabbos, so you're allowed, even though you're supposed to be happy. But if it's, if you have a bad dream on Friday night, Shabbos day becomes a fast day. However. Now comes the sh- first shilt of Ab. Borim. Now that I've told you all of this about what Shabbos is supposed to be, now comes question. What about somebody who's fasting on Friday? Should he continue to fast into Shabbos? He's fasting because of a Thursday night bad dream. Hmm. Should he continue that fast into Friday night until it three stars come out? Me, I'm reading do we say even the Shabbos Look, the man's true, he stopped fasting, but he is knocked out, he's got hunger pangs, his face looks shallow and, and white and vapid from not eating. How could you come into Shabbos that way? Oh Dilma, we say no. He's got to finish the fast. He didn't fast during Shabbos. Shopper dummy. So that is question number one, based on what he just said. 
So this would be like, everybody was listening. What do you think about this question? Okay, now I've got another question. Remember we talked about um, not w- walking differently on Shabbos, striding with a certain aristocratic slow air? How about someone who wants to go to a Torah shir, right? Can you run? Can you run? Me, I'm reading Kvot Shabbos. No, no, Kvot Shabbos. You've got to act like it's a big... You wouldn't run at a party. When you wouldn't run to some aristocratic king's party that was there for the, for the, for the celebration of finishing the palace, you wouldn't do that, would you? So maybe Kavad Shabbos is Odif. Below if so, Odil wait. <laughs> you know what? The Torah is great, isn't it? I'm not running because this is Torah, man. I love Torah. I love Torah every single day of the week. So maybe Chivuve Dvar Halacha Odif. And maybe it's okay to run and act like, oh, I'm running to Shir. What is with that guy? So the Shilta, then he says, I'm so happy that I can ask these questions to you. I'm not giving you the answers, but isn't it great, God, that you've given us this Torah? You gave us these mitzvahs with Moshe. And these are what we're supposed to learn about. Think about these questions and think about how great it is that we have a Torah that is meant to illuminate and give us these type of questions. So that is the beginning of the Shiltas. And I, I don't know if it's super typical, but I think, I think you get a taste of what it is that I was talking about in terms of a different type of work. Right. It's, it's you know, he, he obviously is, is putting from a, a number of different sources and you see what he's leading to. He, what, he's, what he's trying to do is give you an idea. He's trying in a way to lead you into it. He wants to tell you how great Shabbos is. He's giving you some details of halacha. And then he gives you a question, a question to think about. Doesn't even tell you what the answer is. And Maybe other places he will. Gives us you know, a, a, a ideas to work with. And now you guys think about it. Which one do you think is better? So that the, it, it, perhaps it doesn't sound novel to you, but when I tell you that the work was written, uh, you know, was written, uh, you know, four hundred years before the Rambam, uh, and it, then and it's then you have to see that it is something that indeed uh, was breaking or starting a whole new mold. And one of the what we need to sort of figure out as we advance here is. Um, what to do with the halachic aspects of this work, of the madrashic aspects of this work, and perhaps how does how, how does it change us when we read it? Do we do we, does this collection, the way it's put together, really um, resonate? Many people will tell you that the ruach hakodesh of Rashi wasn't so much um, his commentary per se, as it was to what he decided to leave in the commentary and what he did not leave in the commentary. You've heard this before. I think we need to approach the uh, Rav Achoy in a similar way. What Midrashim that he had access to does he quote? What doesn't he quote? And what is he trying to do? Look, Hakol Tovi B'mazel. You didn't learn Shiltas when you were growing up. You learned Rashi and Chumash. 
But had things turned out a little bit differently, had Europe not developed the way it did, had there not been that development that we talked about, we might all be, this might be our standard fare, which is everybody studies shiltas every week. And I think, therefore, I think we can find those gems there. And Mirza Hashem, we will in weeks to come. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 